we came back with five or six really courageous warriors from this enemy tribe who were literally taking their lives in their hands by escorting mom and dad and me. By that time, I was seven months old, uh, into this Howie domain. And we rounded the last bend in the river after paddling from sunup. The sun was now setting, and silhouetted against that setting tropical sun was a throng of 400 Sawi warriors waiting to welcome us. <laughs> the word had gotten out. So just 400 warriors. Just men. With their headdresses, some of them were holding long drums, they were holding spears, bows and arrows, ready for anything. Jenny Rice in Arcadia, California. I've been a part-time medical transcriptionist for many years while being mom and homeschooling our five kids. But now I am a part-time teacher at a Christian school too. I feel compelled to pour love and God's truth into the next generation in these times of cultural chaos. I love listening to Compelled on my commute after catching up on the day's news because it refocuses my mind on things that matter for eternity. I am in awe of God's power showcased in each episode and am reminded that greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Our last episode was with Curtis and Deanne Lewis, who took their five-year-old daughter, Natalie, in for a routine heart procedure. But during that operation, her heart was accidentally punctured, and she stopped breathing for 15 minutes. The doctor shared the terrible news that Natalie would never recover and possibly not even survive. And just like that, Curtis and Deanne were thrust into the most difficult season of their lives, faced with decisions about trust, forgiveness, and ultimately, hope. Again, that's our previous episode with Curtis and Deanne Lewis. This week, our guest is Steve Richardson. When Steve was just a baby, he and his parents traveled halfway across the world to the island of New Guinea and moved in with a tribe of Stone Age cannibals. Their purpose? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the ends of the earth. Their reception? <laughs> You'll have to stay tuned to find out. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Almost half of my lifetime ago, I came across a rather interesting book called Peace Child. The author, Don Richardson, explained in great detail his experiences moving his family to the opposite side of the world to share the good news of Jesus with a Stone Age tribe living on the island of New Guinea that had never before encountered the outside world. And as you can imagine, the story was riveting, especially for my 17-year-old self. The author, Don, went to be with the Lord about five years ago. But I never imagined that I would get to sit down with his oldest son, Steve, and hear the stories again firsthand. And yet earlier this spring, on a sunny day in Florida, that's precisely what happened. And the story begins around 1960. Mom and Dad were 26, 27 years old, fairly recently out of Bible school in Alberta, Canada. My dad was Canadian and my mother American, and they met at a place called Prairie Bible Institute, north of Calgary. 
And they had heard a speaker talk about all these lost tribes out there in New Guinea that had been surveyed from military aircraft, you know, during World War II and just the smoke of a thousand villages. So this, this speaker with the British accent had challenged the student body to take the message of Christ to these, these other worlds, you know, these other cultural worlds. And, and they just felt very powerfully moved by God. Not just mom and dad, but several other students who heard this. They actually kind of signed up together, and there were a couple of dozen of them that ended up out there serving in various tribes, learning different languages. Now, a lot of people don't know much about New Guinea, but it's a 1,500-mile-long island shaped like a Tyrannosaurus rex sunbathing on the equator north of Australia. There are literally about 1,500 languages on that island and the islands around it. So a, a fifth of the world's languages are found in and around New Guinea. When I was six months old, mom and dad packed me up and we got on a ship, left Vancouver, Canada, and sailed via Hawaii and New Zealand, ended up in New Guinea. And uh, we arrived in the highlands, and a few missionaries had preceded mom and dad into the Dani tribe, one of the larger tribes in the highlands. And as we were getting off the airplane, they said to my parents, we've just heard about the Sawi people down there in the southern swamps, and it's, it's, it's hot, it's humid, lots of mosquitoes. It's not like it is up here in the mountains in the highlands, you know, at four or 5,000 feet. As far as we know, they haven't had contact with the outside world. And they live in tree houses. They're probably pretty fierce people. Would you be happy to take the gospel to them? <laughs> Mom and Dad said, yes, that's what we've come to do. And with the help of another missionary uh, who'd recently pioneered a work in a neighboring tribe with a whole completely different language, Dad went in and made first contact with a few Sawi warriors that were brave enough to come out of the jungle and encounter them in their little boat. First contact doesn't mean not having heard airplanes overhead, like during the war, but it means the first time actually being in the physical presence of someone from an outside civilization, other than the four tribes that bordered their own territory. So there were, there were 18 Sawi villages, and the Sawi tribe has two dialects, so it's kind of like two halves of the tribe. You can understand each other, but it's not super easy. There's the northern half and the southern half, so the, these 18 villagers are divided. But then they're surrounded by the Kaigar tribe and the Aoyu tribe and the Atahuaym and the Asmat. And the Sawi tribe at that time, when, when we first arrived, had probably no more than 3,000 people at the most. So Dad, using sign language, got their help, these four or five warriors, you know, to build a house uh, about 20 feet by 20 feet and tried to explain, I'm going to come back with my wife and my little baby and we're going to live in this house and it'd be great if you would move out of the jungle and locate here and we want to learn your language and be among you. We came back with five or six really courageous warriors from this enemy tribe who were literally taking their lives in their hands by escorting mom and dad and me, by that time I was seven months old, uh, into the Sawi domain. And we rounded the last bend in the river after paddling from sun up. The sun was now setting and silhouetted against that setting tropical sun was a throng of 400 Sawi warriors waiting to welcome us. <laughs> the word had gotten out. So just 400 warriors. Just men 
with their headdresses. Some of them were holding long drums. They were holding spears, bows and arrows, ready for anything. The warriors from several Sawi villages that normally squabbled and fought with each other were united by this specter of an outside pale looking creature arriving. Dad reached over and in the canoe as it slid to a stop in the mud at the feet of this throng of warriors. Mom and Dad basically said to each other, it's too late now, <laughs> we're committed. He picked me up out of Mom's arms, not knowing that in the Sawi culture for an outsider to come with no weapons in his hands and carrying a baby was a reassuring sign that the person was coming in peace and had no ulterior motives. And carried me up, Mom followed, and the crowd just converged around us. They didn't see any women or children. They were all hiding in the jungle. And then they realized this was going to be okay. And uh, they started to dance. And Dad, I remember Dad describing it as if we were at the eye of a human hurricane as several hundred warriors just swept around us, dancing and chanting and celebrating the arrival of these outsiders and gradually swept us up to the little notched pole that led into our hut, which was about six feet off the surface of the swampy soil. And then the women started to materialize out of the jungle as it darkened, and the children, because they realized everything was, and they joined in the dancing. And this throng danced around our house for almost three days and three nights without stopping. Oh, wow. That's how history-changing you can imagine this event was for them as a society. As history-changing as their family's arrival was for the Sawi people, it was also life-changing for the Richardsons. As they settled into their new home amongst the tribe, they slowly began to learn more about these people who were still a mystery to the outside world. This knowledge would be vital not just for their own survival in the jungle, but also as they looked for ways to communicate and connect with their new neighbors. So the Sawi people were hunter-gatherers, semi-nomadic, living in a purely jungle setting. About 30 miles from the coast, the south coast of the island of New Guinea. But the, the rivers would rise and fall with the tides, five or six feet a day at least, because everything was so flat there. It's like a massive delta. And they were isolated. I mean, there were other small tribes and languages. So the closest language would have been Aoyu, and that was about as close as Dutch is to English, which is quite close. Wow. The others were radically different. I just couldn't understand anything they were saying. And the Sawi men didn't wear anything except, you know, decorative items, like a, an armband or a headdress. So no grass skirt? A necklace, no grass skirts. The women wore grass skirts, and not much by way of, you know, decorative items and all that. No shoes, all that. And, you know, their feet, the skin would be quite thick because walking through swamps and on logs and bugs and their whole lives. You know, you think of people in some of these, what you might consider primitive settings as being large and muscular. And, you know, you've got kind of a movie prototype, maybe yeah. stereotype in people's, a lot of people's minds. Tarzan encountering this, you know, village of tall savages or whatever. 
But really, the, the reality, and I think this is more true than not in most parts of the world, is these people were generally malnourished. They had lots of parasites. There, there wasn't as much food there in the jungle as you might think. You know, they had fish in the river. If they worked hard, they could catch shrimp by putting some bark in there that had some poison in it, kind of paralyzing some of the shrimp and catching them with a, a bit of a kind of a fabric fence as the tide went out. There were snakes. There were some exotic things like cassowary birds or like ostriches, except they live in the jungle. Wild pigs would be the main source of protein that they had, but you could do that mostly by moonlight. And um, it was a culture that you'd call uh, animistic, living in fear of evil spirits and trying to placate the spirits. They would build villages temporarily. They wouldn't repair their houses. They would just relocate to a nearby tributary or somewhere else to be closer to whatever they could harvest there. And then they would kind of do a circle through part of the Sawi territory. Each village would do a circle so that they would stay proximate to more reachable pigs and fruit and so forth. And by the time they made the whole circle, wherever they had been a few years earlier would have, would have been replenished. But their main staple was the pulp from a palm tree called the sago palm. It's a little bit like we get tapioca from. And it's, it's, it would remind you of a flower or a potato or a, a manioc root. And, and what they do is they, they, they chop down a mature sago palm, split it open using a process with water. They filter the pulp from all the fiber that's on the inside of that tree into a big chunk, you know, that they carry home weighing 15 pounds potentially. And then for each meal, they would break off a chunk of that and cook it in the fire. And if they have a little meat, they would add it to that and whatever fruit they've been able to gather. They had quite a few words for, for the harvesting process for sago. They had words, I mean, like there's four different kinds of grubs. That's another thing they would eat and that I enjoyed as a kid. You know, there's the small variety, there's the medium, and there's the, the large, you know, basically the supersized, <laughs> which are gross. The medium, the medium size were fine. They're only about three inches long. And they turn into different kinds of beetles if you leave them, you know, leave them long enough. So there's the Capricorn beetle and there's the other beetles. And uh, so you, the, the same, the, this sago palm was a gift of God, you know, the tribes there, because it was their staple. It's like potatoes to the Irish, you know, back in the day or whatever, rice. And you could either harvest the sago flower immediately from the felled tree, or you could let it rot for a few weeks and come back at just the right time, and it'll be teeming with grubs and you harvest the grubs and take them home and bite into them like you'd be biting into the michelin man <laughs> with that rubbery exterior and the, just the cholesterol soaked juice permeating your mouth and massaging oh, your tongue and it's just a, a heavenly sensation we seriously had grubs for dinner there as a family on a routine you know we we kind of had a weekly schedule my mom put together a weekly menu and each night it'd be slightly different. Wow. And one of the nights a week at least was the grubs. And the typical idea we have of a tropical, tropical setting, most of what you think of, they didn't have. They, they were on survival mode. And to make it even more challenging, they were, they were trying to survive from their enemies at the same time. Constantly taking revenge on each other for whatever the last crime was. No wonder those tribes were small. 
I mean, they, they've probably been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Who knows, you know, the, the migration patterns. It's a fascinating study, I'm sure. But to survive at all, they survived in small groups. A lot of the men got killed in battles, so polygamy was, was the norm. And the older men, you know, kind of the chiefs or the elders would generally have more wives. This became a bone of contention. Young men wanted wives too, but the old men had taken them. And, you know, a father would promise his daughter in marriage to one of his friends, you know, of an older generation in return for whatever. And so there was just so many reasons why people had a hard time getting along. So it was man against man, clan against clan. In each village, there were multiple clans. And they had names. They were named after different birds. And then there was village against village. And then it was the Sawi tribe against the other four tribes, some of which were quite a bit bigger. But they started fighting with each other. They couldn't stand being close to each other, you know, because of all these grievances from who knows how many generations past. So four villages moved in around us because they wanted to be near us. So suddenly there's like 800 people living around us. Because the, the average Sawi village was 150 to 200 people. And uh, battles broke out. Our front yard was the only cleared area that they had to fight in. So in the first two months, my mom counted like 14 major battles in our front yard. People were getting killed. Arrows were flying over our house. So that kind of paints the picture a little bit. Even while surrounded by all of this generational conflict, God's favor was on the Richardsons, as they themselves were exuberantly welcomed by the Sawi. The modern tools and skills they had brought with them were seen as magical by the tribe and opened numerous doors. And along with that came some rather unique moments. The Sawi had welcomed us with open arms and celebration. They had heard rumors from other tribes about these they called them tuans, these people who had incredible magic powers. They could disappear into a box that had wings on it and just disappear. And then after a period of time, that box with wings might reappear and they would get out of it. And who knows where they've been. And they had all these tools that could make work so much easier. The Sawi literally used stone axes. And by the time those stone axes arrived in the Sawi domain from the mountains 100 miles away, you can imagine how dull those stones were. And trying to make a canoe with a stone axe would take weeks and weeks and weeks of effort to make a small one. So uh, they loved having us around. And, uh, you know, Dad got their help building our house a little more stable and sophisticated fashion. And then got into learning their language and they were thrilled with that. You know, there's a funny story. Dad would point at a canoe and they'd give him a word, ririg. And he'd point at a woman and they'd say, ririg. And he thought, same word. And then he pointed at a house and they would say, ririg. And he thought, is this a language with only one word? And then he realized after a while they kept giving him the word for finger. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a custom of pointing at things. And they thought he was constantly wanting what the, what the word is for, <laughs> for finger. They would use their lips. Their lips. Yeah. And they would kind of like we would do in a kind of a puckered lip kissing, you know. Sending a kiss is, is how they would point at something. It's like giving it a kiss or pointing their chin in that direction. So anyway, they, um, they loved having us around. Uh, you know, the whole idea of matches, starting a fire with this little thing and fish hooks where you could put some worms on it and just sit there and do nothing for a while and a fish ends up getting caught. Uh, knives to cut the meat with. You don't have to use a piece of bamboo anymore. 
So, um, they, you know, they loved, they loved my parents and they respected them. And people were gathered just because of you guys. They were there to be close to, yeah, the foreigners. The magic people. The magic people with all the powers. And the fascination. There's a bit of an anthropologist in everybody. And they noticed after a while, because we would, we, literally growing up, our family would be eating at our kitchen table there in that little house. And there would often be a crowd of six or eight, ten people watching us eat, just standing there at the window. And we had some fly screen on the window. We didn't have any louvers or glass or anything. It was just screen. And uh, they'd be pressing their noses against the screen, and you'd have to replace the screen after a while because of all the damage being done, studying us and how we ate and what are these things they're putting in their mouths that have some food on them. <laughs> and they noticed after a while that generally there was a picture of whatever that food was on the can, you know, and there'd be some kind of a green vegetable. And sure enough, my mom would open up the can and out would come a green vegetable. And then there was a can that had an animal on it that looked a little bit like a pig, you know, kind of an oversized pig. I mean, we knew it was a cow, but they, they wouldn't have had a category for that. And sure enough, some meat would come out. And then to their horror, my mom opened up a little can that had a picture of a human baby on it and poured out a sauce, and we started eating that. And they, the word got around in the village, these people are cannibals too. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine all the cross-cultural challenges. While the cultural and language barriers range from sometimes frustrating to even comical, the Richardsons and Sawi worked through many of them together over time. However, even as their grasp of the Sawi language grew, one cultural divide in particular became a major roadblock to the Richardsons' main purpose and reason for even being there. More on that after the break. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing, even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which, if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing, ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. 
or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back to Compelled. We've just heard Steve Richardson describe to us his experiences growing up as a child with his family amongst the unreached Sawi tribe in New Guinea. He was truly able to experience a multicultural upbringing there in the jungle and saw firsthand how God protected them and was using them to minister to the people there. But that multicultural environment also presented the Richardsons with one of the greatest challenges they would experience, how to share the gospel message of God's love and forgiveness to a people whose underlying worldview didn't even desire such a gift and in fact found it laughable. And so I had the incredible privilege of growing up there. Mom and dad had been trained a little bit in how to learn a language and plunged in. And because we had no other Westerners around, no other English speakers, I grew up speaking Sawi. And I spoke English too, because mom and dad spoke English. But they quite quickly started to learn the language. When dad started explaining the gospel message to some of the men, in this special house that they called the man house, which was a a house where the warriors would gather and they would have parties and they would plan the next hunting trip or the next raid on another village or whatever. And he, uh, this would have been, you know, a couple of months into the process as he was starting to get the language a little bit. And he came to the part where Judas betrayed his friend Jesus to death. And there was a ripple of laughter and a man named Mahain in the back of the smoky room said, Tuan Don, Tell us more about Judas. And dad said, you mean Jesus? They said, no, Judas, he sounds like one of us. And dad said, what do you mean? And Mahain said, well, didn't you just say that he betrayed his friend to death? We do that all the time. And we have a practice that's called Tui Asanaiman. Literally in their language, it meant to do with a human as you would treat a pig. Hmm. So, you know, in their culture, they go out pig hunting and they, um, if it's some other pig that has piglets, you know, they'll take the piglets back to the village, raise the piglets, and then eventually, you know, when the pig gets big enough, they'll kill it and have a feast. And so the, the idea there in their culture was, you can do the same thing with a human being. You can, you can engender trust over a period of time, invite them to parties and so forth, and, and then betray them to death. 
So, you know, mom and dad realized that not only were they among a people who lived in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp, and not only were headhunters, and I remember seeing the skulls in their homes, you know, when I was a kid, but they were cannibals too. And then to make things even more complex, they thought Judas was the hero of the gospel story. <laughs> the Sawi were headhunters in two senses. One is, they, they just tended to save the skulls of some of the loved ones who'd passed away. In some cases, using them as pillows and just remembering them and keeping them around the house. Uh, but the more scary dimension was, and it was combined with cannibalism, was saving the skulls of warriors that they'd killed in battle from other villages or other tribes as trophies. And the cannibalism, really, it wasn't because they needed more meat. You know, it wasn't that they were wanting to eat people, particularly. It was that they were absorbing in that ceremonial process what anthropologists call the mana, the, the power of that individual and, and his spirit. So when you when you kill an enemy, you know, you add, you add another trophy to you. You can tell from your bow or your spear how many people you've killed because you've got a little notch there. It's a little bit like the aircraft in World War II, you know, how many planes they'd downed. And uh, by actually eating some of that person's flesh, the animistic idea was that they're getting that person's mystical world power and absorbing it and multiplying their own influence, you know, in the, in the community and their prestige. Hmm. So they're very in tune with the spirit world. Now, only part of the spirit world, what we would call the demonic side. And they lived in fear of the spirits. Uh, there, there weren't good spirits. In the midst of this headhunting cannibalistic tribe who viewed Judas, not Jesus, as the hero of the gospel story, the Richardsons were at a loss. They so desperately wanted to break through to the Sawi people with the saving power of Jesus, but in their own finite understanding, couldn't see a way to do that. But little did they know that God had already been laying the groundwork and preparing the hearts of the Sawi through a tradition that had been ingrained into them over countless generations. The biggest challenge was this whole idea of the gospel. How is it going to be communicated? If they don't realize who Jesus was, and uh, this fighting broke out, and my dad said to the Sawi warriors at one stage, he said, you have to make peace, or we might go to some other tribe that wants to hear the message. We came to bring peace. We came to bring, be a blessing. But people are getting injured, if not killed, and I'm tired of rushing out and breaking bows and arrows and trying to restore peace, you know, as you're fighting with each other. But he wondered to himself, how does a treachery idealizing culture convince their enemies that they're actually serious about making peace? So the next morning, dad was studying the language with this friend of his, Adi, I remember Adi, and uh, going over some new vocabulary. And I heard a tremendous noise out behind the house and thought to himself, I'm going to have to go out and you know, bring peace to a throng of people who were trying to kill each other once, once again. But this time as he ran out to see what was happening, he saw a startling sight. A father had grabbed his little baby boy from his wife, the child's mother. This was a newborn baby boy and was rushing over the logs and through the mud over to the enemy village of Hainam from the village of Kamor, tears streaming down his cheeks. And the mother was throwing herself in the mud and wailing and saying, why does it have to be us? Other people have several children, we only have one. And the father gave the baby boy to the enemy over in Hainam, came back, 
And my dad turned to Adi and said, Adi, what's happening? And Adi said, well, Tuan, you've been telling us we have to make peace, right? And dad said, yes. He said, well, this is how we make peace. We give one of our own baby boys to the enemy as a proof of our sincerity. And dad said, are they going to hurt that baby boy? And they said, no, because the peace will only last as long as he lives. And then sometime later, another father from that second village grabbed his little baby boy and ran to the first village and gave a peace child, a tarop team, they called this, this child, to Kamur. And dad realized there was an exchange of two baby boys being given and that the peace between those two, two villages, there were ceremonies that took place. And one by one, the warriors in each of the villages laid their hands on the little boy that they had received from the enemy, saying, I accept this Tarop team as a basis for peace between me and this enemy tribe. And the, all the warriors in the village would go through that. And then they had a big celebration saying, there's not going to be any more war. It's going to be peace now. And dad went in and talked to mom. mom. Mom had been watching this as well. And they realized together that God was answering their prayers. And this whole concept of two parties being in conflict with each other and of one of those parties so desperately wanting to make peace that he makes the ultimate sacrifice and gives his own son to the enemy to secure peace, an eternal peace. I mean, that's the gospel message. Yeah. And unlike a Sawi peace child who could get bit by a death adder and die in half an hour or fall out of a treehouse into the thorns below and bleed to death or get eaten by a crocodile, Jesus, the ultimate tarot team, the ultimate peace child, ever lives to make intercession for us and secures the peace for eternity for those who embrace him by faith. So uh, it's a really fun story. Just the opportunity as a kid to grow up there with a front row seat to the truth of Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Not just for the Jewish people that Jesus spent his time with 2,000 years ago, but for the Sawi as well and for all the peoples on earth. I can't imagine a greater privilege. And Dad realized fairly quickly that this idea of the peace child among the Sawi was only one version of many keys that God had planted in cultures all around the world, preparing them for the arrival of the gospel message. Mm. And he started researching, you know, the Aztecs and the Incas and the peoples of mainland Southeast Asia, China, Nepal, Africa, and started realizing that they had their own legends. They had their own ways of making peace. They had concepts of God. The Chinese language in its written form had what dad called redemptive analogies embedded right in, right in the script. And uh, so anyway, dad started realizing, you know what? God has, in a sense, set the table in these cultures. He's preceded us. The Spirit of God has preceded us and planted expectations and concepts that if more and more gospel emissaries thought in those terms and researched and asked the right questions and began explaining the gospel message in terms of those concepts, the reception to the gospel was greatly accelerated and aided by knowing the culture, the host culture, and especially those 
heartfelt ideals that they'd been preserving for centuries. This idea of looking into a culture's past to find the keys to the gospel that God had already planted centuries beforehand was revolutionary. And as it began to catch on, God began opening doors for Steve's parents to minister to others far beyond New Guinea in ways that they couldn't have even imagined. And through the Richardsons, God would begin to impact millions around the globe for his kingdom, which you'll hear about right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. You're talking to a friend, and they're going through a really tough time, and you want to share a particular Bible verse with them right there in the moment. But as hard as you try, you can't recall the specific words to the verse. You know the gist, but you can't exactly remember how it goes or where to look it up in the Bible. Does that sound familiar? I know for me, that's happened so many times, which is why scripture memory is so important. And there's a great phone app for that called Verse Locker. It's totally free, no ads, no subscriptions, nothing. You just choose the Bible verses that you want to memorize, and then you do it at your own pace. The app has helpful audio and visual memory tools like blur mode, which gradually blurs out different parts of the verse, or initial mode, which shows you the first letter of each word in the passage. Or you can listen to a narrator read the verse out loud on repeat. It's up to your specific learning style. So the next time you're trying to remember what that verse was, you'll already have it hidden in your heart. Let Verse Locker help you for free. Just search the App Store or Google Play for Verse Locker. Again, that's one word, Verse Locker. Welcome back. As the seeds of the gospel continued to blossom among the tribe, Steve's father, Don, felt called to write a book about this redemptive analogy God had planted in the hearts of the Sawi. That book was the very same one that I read, Peace Child. And when they released it 12 years after having arrived amongst the Sawi, the Richardsons had no idea if anyone would bother to read their story. But as it turned out, God wanted millions to hear the story about his work amongst the Sawi. The book Peace Child was published, I think originally in 1973 or four. A businessman 
donated $30,000 to make a movie out of it. So they produced a 27-minute-long movie called Peace Child, which ended up being shown all around the world next to the Jesus film. It was the second most watched Christian film for a period of time all around the world in Africa. Latin America was being used evangelistically. And the story of what God did with the Peace Child concept among the Sawi and the concept of redemptive analogies took off in churches all across North America. Dad was a gifted speaker and communicator, not just a gifted writer, but a gifted speaker as well. And uh, the book Peace Child caught the attention of Reader's Digest. They condensed the story into one of their issues of Reader's Digest in December, and I think it might have been 1973. And it kind of hit. Reader's Digest was a big deal in those days. And they had all these condensed books. Yeah. Classic books, condensed. And Peace Child became one of those condensed books. So millions of people heard about Jesus and heard about the Sawi by reading mom and dad's story or family story in Reader's Digest. And then this movie took off. It wasn't a full-length movie like you'd watch in a theater, but it was played in churches, you know, all over the place. And the mission organization that my parents were with said, you know what, Don and Carol, we know how much you love serving there in New Guinea with the tribes. But we think that with your gifting and the story that you can tell, it would be a better application of who you are for the bigger picture of what God wants to do all around the world if you would come back and become a spokesperson for what the mission organization does. So Dad started just speaking in hundreds of churches and conferences and God used the faithful obedience of the Richardson family to take what started with the tense arrival of a dugout canoe in the Sawi territory and grow it into a movement whose eternal impact today continues to ripple through not just the Sawi people, but to the ends of the earth. As we wrapped up our time together, Steve shared the incredible things God has done in the years since his family moved away from the Sawi tribe. By the time we left the Sawi after 15 years, their society had been transformed. Probably 60% of the Sawi had expressed personal faith in the Lord Jesus. They had established churches in all 18 villages. The mother church, kind of the big church, was near where we lived. It may to this day be the biggest structure constructed out of native jungle materials that there's ever been. It was 70 feet high. Dad called it the Sawi Dome. And you could fit 1,100 people under this thatch-roofed church. But anyway, all that to say, peace was established for the long haul, not just temporarily. The peace among the villages no longer hinged on these two boys and their lifespans, because now there was a greater peace child upon whose life and resurrection the relationship was now securely established. So these two boys grew up, they were about my age, and we used to play together there, and they were fully embraced and fully adopted into their new families. And one of them actually died in his teens from some sickness. The other became a junior high school teacher and ended up having, I think, 12 kids of his own. So whereas the Sawi numbered about 3,000 when we arrived in 1962, they probably number at least 30,000 now, I'm guessing. And their language has been preserved. Whereas so many tribal languages around the world have been lost over time, and why has the Sawi language been preserved and the Dani and the Aoyu and several other, many other languages 
in that part of the world because the, the New Testament, in some cases, the whole Bible has been translated into those languages. They have their own songs. They have their own hymns. They have, they have their worship services in there. And even as the national language comes in and the kids are educated in the national government schools and become bilingual and able to function, you know, in modern society, they still have preserved their own language, their own humor, a lot of their own traditions and legends and so forth, but it's all been redeemed. Much of it has been redeemed by the gospel message. They started intermarrying with people from the other tribes who were also responding to the gospel through other people, other people's ministry. Dad used to say that a majority of Sawi children didn't make it past the age of six or so. The, the infant mortality rate was so high with all the diseases they had and with medicine and with loving care, those things started to be eliminated and children started surviving. And that's why the Sawi are so much more numerous today than they were then. From 3,000 to 30,000. Yes. And they're all over the place. So the Sawi today, you know, 10 years ago, we had the opportunity, my father and my brothers and I, to go back for the 50th anniversary of the arrival of the gospel when we paddled in in a canoe, 3,000 people gathered to celebrate. Because this was, this was the most historic event in their entire history as a people. And uh, we just had so much fun. And people from the other four tribes that used to be enemies, they formed an alliance now to take the gospel to yet other groups. Oh, wow. In other places that may yet need that kind of help. And they're part of a large denomination now that includes people from probably 100 other tribes. And they have a sense of identity, not just as a people for their own language and culture, but as members of the, the body of Christ. So, yeah, praise God. It's just phenomenal. Really appreciate your time, man. Thank you. I mean, it's fun. You know, it's always fun to reminisce and yeah. go over. Celebrate what the Lord celebrate is doing. It. It's been 61 years since the Richardsons moved in with the Sawi tribe. They never set out to launch a worldwide missions movement. They just wanted to be faithful stewards of the calling that God had given them. And during the 15 years that the Richardsons lived with Asawi, they helped create an alphabet for their language, taught them how to read, and then translated the New Testament into their native tongue. Steve's two younger brothers, Paul and Shannon, were born there and grew up among the Sawi. And today, both of them still live in Southeast Asia and serve the Lord faithfully. Steve has spent the rest of his life involved in missions and today is the president of the Pioneers USA Missions Organization. To learn more about their work, visit pioneers.org. Also, if you head over to the show notes page on our website for this episode, we've got original photos of Steve's family amongst the Sawi, the documentary they filmed 50 years later, and all kinds of other cool stuff. Also, we'll be giving away an autographed copy of the Peace Child book. To find all of that or to enter the drawing, just visit compelledpodcast.com and look up this episode. Now, there were so many more stories from our interview we didn't have time to include, such as the time when Steve was a baby and the Richardson's canoe capsized and Steve fell into crocodile infested waters, or the time when a massive python snuck into their home. And of course, there's Steve's own story of salvation and the story of massive culture shock when they moved back to North America when he was 15. And of course, Steve has his own stories from working on the mission field, including the time he got to share the gospel in South Africa with the man who was currently mugging him. 
If you would like to hear just one of these special bonus stories, then hop onto our show notes page, the one I already told you about, leave us your email address and we'll give you instant access. And as a monthly partner, you can listen to all of the bonus stories and more in our full length behind the scenes interviews with each of our guests. These are the original recordings from the interview and are basically unedited. Yes, we take out bathroom breaks, but beyond that, it's pretty much close to the original interview, which can range anywhere from two to four hours with so many more stories. Again, that's one of the perks we make available for all of our monthly partners. The other perk for our monthly partners is early access to each of our episodes. One week before our next episode officially releases, we'll send it out to our monthly partners first. And that's just our way of saying thank you for coming alongside us and enabling us to continue telling these stories of what God is doing around the world. Without you, we can't tell these stories. So thank you, thank you for playing a part. If you're not a monthly partner, but would like to become one, head over to compelledpodcast.com slash donate, and you can either join our Patreon or make a contribution directly on the website and select the monthly option. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, story editing by Nathan Webster, sound engineering by Zach Feller, and our associate producer is my sweet wife, Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from our next story with Eric Hovind. Eric grew up in a Christian household and served faithfully in his family's Christian ministry, volunteered at church, and always knew all the right answers. But one night, he came face to face with a shocking realization. He was the product of Christian culture and teaching, but he was a total stranger to Christ. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story two weeks from now. We'll see you then. Oh my goodness, that DVD rocked my world. I'm like, I I can't go to sleep right now. I hit play again on Hell's Best Kept Secret and watch it a fourth time. And after watching this message for a fourth time, realizing the state of my soul. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th. The other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.